Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 22. A brief portion of this psalm is used in Messiah Oratorio, but we'll be uh, looking at the entire psalm, not certainly doing it justice in any sense, uh, but I think it'll be good for us to see this psalm in its entirety and to ask the Lord to impress its truths on our hearts together. So let's hear then this word of the Lord to us. We're told in the heading that this is addressed to the choir master. We would assume that means it's to be used in public worship, the worship of the congregation. The next words are uh, hard to interpret. Uh, various, various interpretations have been made. My Bible has to the doe of the dawn. Probably that is a tune name that we're not really that clear about. Possibly the uh, word dawn is, is indicative, uh, dawn of the morning, and it's a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening, roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all those who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Are the people of God to lament? What are you, as a follower of Christ, to do with the sadness that you feel at times, with the grief that threatens to swallow you up? with loneliness, anxiety, with physical pain and suffering that just sometimes won't let up. Now, I learned early in life that tears were bad, and complaint was forbidden. To weep was shameful. To confess weakness was humiliating. Crying is for sissies, of course. And the church sort of communicated that to me as well. Not, not least, perhaps, in her music. Wasn't much sadness in the hymns, the songs that I sang with the congregation growing up. There was, in, in fact, quite a, bit of, quite a bit of happiness and optimism and best resolves. One of my favorite hymns growing up, uh, I have to confess, taught me some bad theology. I love to sing, Are Ye Able, said the Master. Are ye able, said the Master, to be crucified with me? Yea, the sturdy dreamers answered, to the death we follow thee. Oh, I wanted to be one of those sturdy dreamers, courageously, courageously responding to that call. Now I would hear that last verse, are ye able, still the master whispers down eternity, and today, heroic spirits answer, now as then in Galilee, 
Lord, we are able, our spirits are thine. Remake Remake them, make us like thee divine. Thy guiding radiance above us shall be a beacon to God, to love and loyalty. I just felt like I could take on anything after singing that hymn. Of course, I should have known that that wasn't good theology because of the context where those words come from in Scripture. Who is it that first says, yes, Lord, we're able? Who had an encounter with Jesus, a couple of brothers. He said, are you able to drink the cup that I will drink? And they said, you bet. Who was that? Not a rhetorical question. Come on, somebody tell me. Sons of Zebedee. What are the names? James and John. James and John came to Jesus one day with their mother, no less. (laughs) Talk about a failure to launch. They come with their mother and and want the number one and number two, or perhaps they both wanted to be number two together behind him as number one. We want to be first in your kingdom. Jesus said, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Of course, of course we can do that. They had no clue what they were saying. They had not the foggiest idea of what he was talking about. But they thought, we're courageous, we're brave, we're strong, we can do it. Of course, they weren't. (laughs) And they had to learn an entirely different theology. You see, they were still caught up in the theology of this world. My niece, Jana, recently sent me an email with a link to an article by a man by the name of Russell Moore. He says this, too often right now when our young men, he's speaking to Christians here, too often right now when our young men are asking what it means to be a man, too many of us offer them Roman virtues. Roman virtues. Dominate. Full rank, be a leader, be strong. That, that's the way of the world, isn't it? The pursuit of power, wealth, and glory. Of course, that's the way of Satan as well, isn't it? Because that's exactly the temptations he laid out to our Lord. That's not a biblical worldview. We see a biblical worldview in our text, though. We see a lament. We see a man sorrowing. And if you've walked with the Lord very long, I think you'll be able to resonate with what he says. 
Because essentially, the believer in Psalm 21 is asking two questions. God, where are you? And God, why has this happened? Where are you, God? You've left. Far away you are from saving me. He uses the, the word there that's the root for Savior, the word that's the root for Joshua, the name Jesus. You're far from my, my salvation. Is it in sight? I don't see any way out. That's what he's saying. You, you, you've given me no out. You're far away. You don't hear me. I, I'm, I'm groaning. He uses a very physical ter term here of, of the sound of an animal make, makes in pain or distress. Where are you, God? Why? Why is this happening? Michael Card, in an excellent book on lament, said, All of our journeys, yours and mine, begin with lament, did they not? Began with lament, did they not? Before we uttered our first breathless cries, our mothers lamented in pain, giving birth to us. We were all ushered into a world in which the first sounds we heard were inevitably weeping, weeping for pain and weeping for joy, because the two are often linked more closely than we can imagine. He goes on to point out that about a third of the Psalms are laments. And in fact, he, he asserts, lament is not a path to worship, but the path of worship. He cites as an example the word of the Lord through Moses, he said to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you. Actually, he's, he's saying this to Pharaoh, I'm sorry. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. And he card points out two things there. First, the purpose of a people of God is to serve him. And that's the same word as, as worship in the Old Testament. Your purpose as a people of God is to worship God, to glorify him, not just when you're sitting in a pew here, but every day in your workplace, in your home, in your recreation, you're called to worship and serve God. But notice the setting that Card points out here, that they may worship me in the wilderness. They had to go through a wilderness experience in order to get to the place of worship. And you could probably testify that to that yourself. Again, if you've walked with the Lord very long, that it is in those wilderness experiences that you come to truly worship God. How do we lament? Let's let David show us how to lament in this psalm. 
Because there's a godly sorrow and there's an ungodly sorrow. And I want you to be able to sorrow in a godly way when that is God's calling to you. First of all, we've already noticed the, the complete honesty of godly sorrow. David doesn't put on a front here. And he encourages us not to put on the front. Remember, he gave, the, he gave this psalm for public worship. So he wants God's people to be able to say to God in worship, where are you? I don't perceive you. I have no sense of your presence. Do you ever come to worship like that without a sense of God's presence? Of course you do. Do you ever feel his absence out in the work week, in a relationship? David's example tells us, be honest. Okay, admit your grief, admit your sorrow, admit the trouble that you're going through. And so he's, he's perfectly frank. I feel abandoned. I feel all alone. Trouble isolates, doesn't it? Physical pain isolates. If, if you've known physical pain, you know what I'm talking about. It cuts you off from people. You're, 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 you're sort of isolated inside your pain. David confesses that. But this is not a lament at God. This is not a, not a complaint at God, but it's rather to God. Do you see the difference there? David is, is confessing his, his aloneness, his, his, his sense of being overwhelmed, but he still says, my God. In fact, three times in those first two verses, doesn't it? My God, my God, my God. He tells God who he views as his God, that he's not there. Now, of course, this is totally illogical, isn't it? <laughs> it's illogical for David to say, God's not here, and then talk to him, and call him my God. There may be an earthly illogic here, but there is a divine logic. There is the logic of faith, the logic of faith. God is not there in David's experience, but his faith says he's still there. And not only is he still there, he's my God. When you lament, when you sorrow, Give your sorrow, voice your sorrow to the one who is your God. If, if he's not your God, if you're thinking right now, I, I don't know that I could address him as my God. I know there's a God, but I, can, I don't think I could address him as my God. Then I press through. Okay, don't let up in the midst of your sorrow until you can say, my God. And you'll find out how to do that before we're done here.
So there's an honesty, there's a frankness here in the first stanza. We could say your Bible may, like mine, have a little extra gap between verse 2 and 3, which tells us there's a change in stanza. Notice that as we go through here. I think it'll be helpful because now, now David turns from himself, his isolation, this grief, this terrible sorrow he's going through, and he looks to God. Perhaps he's addressing God as my God. It has prompted him to do that. And so he, he thinks about God in your sorrow, in your lamenting, don't forget God. Okay. So he reminds himself. He reminds himself by speaking to God. Yet you, in contrast to me, I think we're to read that, you are holy, enthroned, living, dwelling, abiding in the praises of Israel. See what he's doing? He's reminding himself of God's redemptive work in history. Okay, you, you need a sense of your history. Okay, this is this is your history. He's going to say in a moment, our fathers, okay? There's a history to God's people. If you're a child of God, you have a people. These are your people. These are your father, fathers. These are your mothers, okay? God displayed his holiness in their worship. They trusted him, and he responded. They had faith in him. They cried out for help, and they were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. He's reminding himself of the reality of the history of God's God with his people. He's not experiencing it right now. Okay, he's not rescued yet. He's not saved. He's in the midst of sorrow. He, he's, he's abandoned. He's isolated. But he reminds himself of the history of God's people. Don't forget the history of God's people your people if you're a follower of Christ. Now, of course, that doesn't change his circumstance. So verse 6, there's a contrast here. But I, and again, there's an emphasis there. Me, as for me, I'm a worm and not a man. You ever feel like you're Lower than a snake's belly, as he said when I was growing up. You ever feel like you're different than everybody else? Somehow you you don't measure up the way other people do. You don't cope the way other people do. You're not the kind of Christian other people are. And in fact, David is experiencing... Not only that inner sense of worthlessness, he's being told he's worthless by other people, and culture does that to us, doesn't it? Your circumstances sometimes do that. People mock at you, further isolating you, further giving you sorrow. Isn't it the case that often just, just when you're having the roughest time, somebody piles, on, piles it on to you? You know, there's that hurtful word. There's that impatience just when you're dealing with a physical sickness. There's that, there's that rejection that comes just when you're most vulnerable. 
But really the worst thing is in verse 8 here, the worst thing in this picture. And that is your faith is scorned. It's the persecutors who are speaking in verse 8. That's why your translation probably has quotation marks there. That's the, these are the persecutors. This is Satan speaking. He trusts in the Lord. Literally in the text, it's an imperative in second person saying, rely on the Lord. It, it, that's being thrown in the face of David. Rely on the Lord, you Christian, you, you the, who give the testimony that you're a follower of Christ. Just rely on the Lord. What's the problem? He's going to deliver you. He'll rescue you. For he delights in you. When you start hearing that, you begin to think, well, Maybe I'm not one that he delights in. Maybe that's why I'm experiencing this trouble, because I don't belong to him. That's the voice of Satan. That's the voice of the enemies. But it's going to be hard to hear sometimes. So he's experiencing this from within, from other people, even in a sense spiritually he's being attacked. What's his recourse? What do you do when you're feeling like that? What do you do when you're overwhelmed in that way? We'll look at the next stanza here, beginning in verse 9. David, in effect, says, in spite of all this that I'm going through, in spite of the loneliness, in spite of the isolation, in spite of the attacks from other people, in spite of the fact that I'm even questioning my own faith, where else can I go? Where else can I go? You are the one who took me from the womb, made me to trust in my mother's breast. Don't you love that beautiful image? He's acknowledging the sovereignty of God. That's what he's doing, isn't it? God, you're, you're the one that put me here. You're the one that created me. And, and from farther back than I can remember, you've been drawing me to yourself, even before I realized that you were drawing me. I think that's what's pictured here. On you I was cast from my birth, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. You've wooed me to yourself in a thousand ways that I haven't even noticed. And so, God, be not far from me. He's using the same word he used in the beginning when he said, God, you're far away. <laughs> Lord, don't be far from me. For trouble is near. You seem so far away, but the trouble is right here. And there's none to help. 
In those deepest extremities of your life, there is none to help but God. If you put your faith anywhere else, it will be disappointed. But David, even in the midst of trouble, says, there's no one to help me if you don't. I'm putting all my faith in you. That's where you want to go with your lament, your sorrow. You want to let your lament, your sorrow, your trouble drive you to the one who can help. He continues with it. Three more stanzas. We'll just have to go through these hurriedly as he describes his enemies. They have this animal-like, this bestial character. He just feels torn apart by them. Inside, he's totally lost strength. I'm poured out like water. I have no strength. Don't you sometimes feel that way in, in, in a time of, of adversity, in a time of suffering? You're just drained. You're just exhausted. And yet the pain won't let up, emotional or physical. My strength is dried up like a, a, a potsherd is just a piece of broken pottery. Okay, I, I, I'm broken. I'm dried up. I, I, I'm in, a month, in the midst of a people that are acting like I'm already dead. Right? They're, they're already dividing up my clothes. They're already gambling for my garment because they know I'm as good as dead. Again, they're like animals ripping at me, piercing my hands and my feet. But that just urges him to to be all the more fervent in calling out to God. As his sorrow increases, so does his crying out to God. But you, there is that. Emphasis on you again. You, O Lord, Yahweh. He's using the covenant name for God there that identified him with his people. You, Yahweh, do not be far off. He repeats that. Oh, you, my help. You're my only help. See that echoed again in those words. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver me. Save me from these enemies. And in the midst of that, at the point of deepest sorrow, it seems, and most fervent crying out to God. Suddenly, the text is interrupted. It's very difficult for us to get this in English. My translation ends, verse 21, with the line, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, actually, that, that word, it's just one word in the Hebrew, you have rescued me, That comes at the end of the verse. So there's going to be differences in how that's translated perhaps in your Bible because it would seem to actually go with what goes before. Save me from the mouth of the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. And I would think that's probably the way we're to read it. So suddenly at the end of verse 21, we have that one word declaration, you have rescued me. And you've already noticed the entire tenor of the Psalms changes at that point, doesn't it? 
goes from being a psalm of lament to being a psalm of praise. See that over and over again in the Psalms, by the way. You have rescued me. Now, it could be, it would be okay for us to read that as, well, God delivered David right at that point. And so now he's describing the aftermath, okay, when he was free. I'm not sure we, I'm not sure we should do that. Because I think we could read that as a declaration of faith. You have rescued me. Hebrew technically has no past tense and present tense and future tense. They've got a tense that, that conveys the idea of something that is done. Okay, it's done, it's finished. It could be done and finished in the future, in the present, in the, in the past. And it's got a, a, a verb form that is the imperfect, that it's something still going on, still going on in the past and the present and the future. This is, this is the verb form that says it's done. And so it's a good translation, I think, in English to say, you have rescued me. It is an accomplished fact. I don't think, I don't think we have to read that to assume that David suddenly is not suffering anymore. I think this is an expression of faith. And in your lament, in your sorrow, in your trouble, as you're drawn to God, as you realize he's your only hope, he's your only help, he's your only reliance, you are then called to profess your faith in him. And to say, God, I'm not in any different circumstances now than I was 10 seconds ago. But I believe you have rescued me. I believe you have saved me, not merely from earthly circumstances, but you have saved me eternally. Do you catch that? True Christian faith doesn't demand an escape from the trouble. That's what the unbelievers do. That's what they were doing earlier in the psalm, isn't it? Say, you're in this trouble because your faith is worthless. Either God's not there or your faith is worthless. And your response to that is, I believe in my rescuer, in my savior, in the midst of the trouble. I think that's what he's doing. And so all the rest of the psalm shifts the verb structure. It's not in the perfect anymore. It's in the imperfect. And so we translate it future. I will tell you of your, I will tell of your name to my brothers. See, I, see, I, think, I think David's saying, I'm not out of the trouble yet. But I know that you are my savior. You are my rescuer. Now I'm telling you right now, while I'm still in the trouble, what I'm going to do, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to brag about what my God has done. Notice too here that 
that David has been drawn out of that isolation, out of that separation, into the congregation of God's people. All the rest of the psalm is about God's congregation ever expanding and ever continuing. David's not alone anymore. He realizes. He realizes the truth that he belongs to the people of God. And, he, and he'd already said, hadn't he, that, that there are a people of praise. And so he says, I'm going to praise you, Lord. I'm going to praise you. A follower of Christ is able to praise in the midst of difficulty. That's what has so perplexed the persecutors down through the ages. How is it that these people can, can suffer and yet praise God? It's because they know the heart of faith that he is their savior, that he is their rescuer. We don't have time to unpack all the rest of the psalm here that, that talks of just just beautiful, beautiful explanation of the praise and the worship of, of God's people that I, I hope really reflects the worship that we experience here from week to week. But I want to hurry on to, to remind us of why this is true. Why is it that you can move through lament, be drawn to God, and to strengthen your faith in God? In fact, there are numerous texts that I, I had that we can't look at that talk about that, that it's in your suffering that you're drawn to God and that you're strengthening God. How is it that that can happen? Well, it's because ultimately, isn't it, David wasn't alone, Right? It really seemed like he was alone to him. It really feels like isolation when you're going through this difficult trial. It really, you experience it in a very real sense. And yet the truth is he wasn't. God was sustaining him, holding him up. The follower of Christ never knows complete abandonment because his father is always there. But Charles Jennings was right to put this into the Messiah as indicative of Christ because that's where we're ultimately led with this passage, isn't it? You already know that. You are not abandoned. You are not ultimately alone in your sorrow. Your cries are heard. Because there was one who was abandoned. His cries were not heard. And he endured all the wrath of hell in your place. The Messiah, the anointed one, suffered the consequences for your sin so that you don't have to. The father turned his back on the son so that he wouldn't turn his back on you. 
the son suffered separation from his loving father, whom he always loved, in order to unite you to that loving heavenly father. And the spirit himself, Spirit himself empowered Jesus to go through hell to drink the cup of God's wrath so that he could fill you and pour into your heart the love of God. We grieve, but not as other people, not only in the death of a loved one who knows the Lord. We grieve differently about those ordinary troubles as well. I pray that you learn to lament in a godly way. Because I know then, I know then that that's going to work good in your heart and in your life. And not only that, it will enable you, and again, I've got scripture passages that I intended to look at with this, but I can't right now. But, but let me just remind you that the scripture tells us that as you suffer, and as you are sustained by that hope within you, by that hope that holds on to you, by that spirit that indwells you, as you are sustained in suffering, you are then able to comfort those you suffer. You're persevering through lament and learning and growing in your faith in that, in that difficult time, in, in that hard time, enables you then to come alongside your brother or sister that is suffering. And there may be all be someone right now in the body of Christ that needs you to come alongside him or her. That is stumbling in their faith, that is growing weak and exhausted and needs someone to come alongside. You know, don't let your lamenting go to waste. But let it enable you to reach out to others and build them up as well. And enable it to, to encourage you to share the good news that you've got. The, the truth that God in Christ is reconciling sinners to himself. Let your experience of lament and the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit through his word in your life, let that let that be all the more impetus for you, for you to share that good news with people who don't have it, who literally don't have this prayer. Share that good news so that they can learn to lament in a godly way. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is so good to know that that as we're followers of you, even our sorrows are meaningful. They have significance. 
It's not the result of chance, of ill will on someone's part. That even our lamenting, even our sorrowing, even our troubles come in the providence of a God who ultimately loves us and is working in all things for his glory and our good. Remind us of that wonderful truth, Lord, and enable us, Lord, to be a people who lament in a godly fashion, who lament first and foremost, of course, over our sins. Confess that we have, we have really, in a, in a very real sense, through our own sin, brought sorrow into this world and into our lives. Help us to lament for our sin and to turn from it in repentance. Seek in you the forgiveness that is available through our sorrowing Savior. Enable us, Lord, then to, to worship you, to praise you in all circumstances, seeking to glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.